congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. It happened a long time ago, so perhaps people that are around 20 years old and older may remember the scene. You could see it on the television. It was in 2008. A sea of glowing faces, eyes shining with an almost messianic fervor as the great man stepped up to the podium and the, the crowd roared with approval as he cried out his slogan, Yes, we can. And one woman was interviewed, tears of joy streaming down her face, saying, he has been elected. Now everything will be all right. That was November 2008, when Barack Obama won the U.S. presidential election. And things got pretty messianic in that TV newscast that I was watching. But things got even more intense afterwards. I read a Huffington Post article shortly afterwards in which the author shared with his readership that as he went through his daily life, he would consciously try to be more and more like Obama. He would ask himself, what would Obama do? You might ask yourself, well, what's next? WWOD bracelets? It's a long time ago. But Obama was hailed almost as a Messiah who had come into his kingdom. There were great expectations for what he would bring to Americans and to the world. And this particular election is no exception. Since that time, the U.S. has gone from one side's Messiah to the other side's Messiah with results which are not very different. We go through this charade Every election cycle also here in Canada, we hope for great things. We, we pin our hopes on our messianic figure. And we usually end up disappointed to a greater or lesser extent. And in the face of such great trust being placed in, in one person, we are led to think of Psalm 146. What does the psalmist say? Do not put your trust in princes, in mortal man who cannot save when their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. That's what Scripture thinks about us pinning our hopes on messianic figures of any side of the political spectrum. And so in opposition to the fleeting and impotent kingdom of man, the psalmist points to the powerful and eternal kingship of God. He says, blessed is he whose hope is in the Lord his God. The Lord reigns forever, your God, O Zion, for all generations. And the second petition of the Lord's Prayer orients our prayers to this understanding of reality. God is king. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. The kingdom of God is very different than the kingdom of man. The kingdom of the last Adam is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of the first Adam is perversion, conflict, and misery in the spirit of Babel. So who is going to stop the slaughter 
the wicked, cold-blooded slaughter of millions of little babies in North America. Well, Stephen Harper wasn't able to stop it, was he? And Justin Trudeau doesn't want to stop it. Who is going to stop the spread of sexual perversion, the unrelenting attack on God's creation ordinance of, of marriage and biblical family? Stephen Harper wasn't able to. Justin Trudeau doesn't want to. Who is going to stop the hatred and the killing in the Middle East? And forget the Middle East. What about here in North America, the brutality, the violence of people, whether it's perpetrated by, by law enforcement or by civilians? As the heart of America's cities are smashed in smoking ruins, who's going to solve these problems? Well, brothers and sisters, if we seek a solution to all of the crying needs of this poor, violent, miserable, unjust, hateful, wicked world, the solution is not to say with the campaign of 2008, yes, we can, because we can't. The solution is to say, yes, he can. That's where the scripture points us. That's where the answer is. We see a waning of Judeo-Christian civilization as our culture transitions back to paganism. The shadows grow longer as the, the last rays of Christian influence linger on the horizon. And this spurs us to urgent prayer not for political success, but prayer for the coming of what really will make a difference, the coming of the kingdom. And that, not as a shortcut, not a short circuit of history. When we say, oh Lord, your kingdom come, we're not saying, oh Lord, quick, get us to the last day as quickly as possible. That's not what we're asking for. But what we're asking for when we pray, your kingdom come, is we're saying, oh Lord, press forward with your objectives. Advance your kingdom with power. Establish your kingship and your rule in every life, in every heart. Throughout history, the saints have longed for the coming of the kingdom. And the worse things get, the more they long for the kingdom. And that starts way back in the history of salvation, the history of redemption. You remember the beginning chapters of Genesis, the, right after the fall, we get to the seventh generation from Adam, and the world is already a very nasty place full of violence and murder, the arrogance of fallen man, and the seed of the serpent seems to have a corner on all the technology and the arts and the science, whereas the seed of the woman seems small and insignificant. And how do the saints react? You remember that from chapter 426 of Genesis. They pray. They call out to God. That's what they're known for. At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. Now, what kind of prayers do the saints offer to God as they long for the coming of his kingdom? Well, today, this afternoon, we're going to turn to the book of Psalms to get an idea of how God's people pray for the coming of the kingdom. We're going to look at quite a few Psalms, so it's helpful if you have your Bible ready. And let's pay attention as we look at these prayers, and let's ask ourselves the question, 
How is my prayer life? Is my prayer life alive? Or is my prayer life little more developed than the prayers I did as a kid? Lord, please bless this food for Jesus' sake. Amen. Praying is something that we need to do as God's people deliberately, thoughtfully. And so that's why the Catechism spends all these weeks talking about how to pray. And so let's pay attention as we turn to the Scriptures and see God's people praying for the coming of the kingdom. And as we turn to the book of Psalms, the first thing we notice is that the saints have a very clear understanding of the fact that there are only two kingdoms, two paths, two options in life. There is this line which runs through the Psalms, as it runs through all the wisdom literature and, and all of the scripture, and it is the line between, between God and Satan, between holiness and sin, between life and death, between heaven and hell. And the psalmists understand very well that Satan, sin, death, and hell are what we get when we elevate man, when we put man in charge, when we put man on the throne. And the psalmists understand that the only way in which God's name can be hallowed and praised and exalted is through every knee bowing and every tongue confessing and submitting to his kingship. And so we see that very, very early in the book of Psalms. If you turn to Psalm 2, for instance, that's that well-known psalm speaking about the kings of the earth rebelling against the kingship of God and God from heaven telling them, that he has set his son, his king on Zion, his holy hill, verse 6. And he tells them, be smart, stop your rebellion, be warned, verse 10, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. And if we turn to Psalm 22, verses 27 and 28, the psalmist here is confident of how this is all going to turn out. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. That's the end of history, and already in the Old Testament period, God's people knew this and hoped in this, and trusted in this. And that's why they, they not only exalt God as their king, but they also cry out to God to help them submit to his kingship more and more. You see that in Psalm 95, for instance, if you flip forward to Psalm 95. And in Psalm 95, the first five verses, they, they hallow God's name, they declare his kingship. Come, let us sing to the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Look at verse 3, the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. He's a sovereign, glorious king to be worshipped. And then look at verses 6 and 7, because of this, oh, come, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before our Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So the psalmist establishes the fact of God's kingship and then calls God's people to, to submit themselves to his kingship. Well, how do we do that? How do we acknowledge God's 
kingship, his lordship, his sovereignty? Well, we do that by praying, Lord, rule my life. Lord, be my king. Lord, help me to submit to your sovereign will. And we have an example of that in Psalm 25. We have an example in many Psalms, but look at Psalm 25, verse 4. And this is what the psalmist is asking. He's saying, Lord, to you I lift up my soul. Then look at verse 4. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. And so that's, that's the first thing we need to understand and pay attention to. The first part of a lively prayer for the coming of God's kingdom is this, that we say to God, Lord, start with me. Teach me to bow the knee. Teach me to confess the name. Teach me your decrees. Teach me to walk in your paths. Teach me to exalt you, my God and my King. That's where it starts. That's where the longing starts. That's where the prayer starts. You see, we too easily jump ahead. We, we want to pray to God to impose his kingship on all areas of life and on other people and on politics and on every kind of thing. We need to start with ourselves. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves this afternoon is, is this my prayerful longing? Do I want God to be king in my life, in every part of my life? Do I pray for that? Do I pray that Jesus would be enthroned in my heart, that he would be sovereign Lord of my marriage, my desires, my plans, my dreams, my work, my wallet, my leisure, my thoughts, my home, my family? Lord, teach me by your word. Guide me by your spirit so that in the great cosmic conflict of the kingdoms, the great battle between darkness and light, I may be part of those troops that we read about in Psalm 110. Those troops who are willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn. That's the longing of God's people as we come to him in prayer and ask for the, the coming of his kingdom. Now, I've mentioned the poem Invictus before, and I want to remind you of it again. I'll just remind you of the last lines. Invictus means unconquered, and it's a hymn to autonomy, human autonomy, and to, to rebellion against God. In the, in the hymn, in the poem, he, he admits that the world is dark. He admits that darkness awaits him in the afterlife as well, but he doesn't care. And he says this, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. What the poet's saying is this, I don't care that, that there's only a narrow gate through which I must go in order to escape from the darkness and to know life. I don't care about eternal punishment that awaits me if I am found outside of Christ on the last day. I don't care because for me, 
I'm happy if I'm in charge of my own life. If I do what I want, I'm the captain of my soul. I'm on the throne. You know, it's really sad. The devil sells us the lie that it is better to be free, between quotation marks, to be free in sin than to be stuck in God's service. And you'll notice that if you talk to people, especially if you talk on social media, the free-willing sinner, the person that just gives themselves over to the way they want to live, they often feel quite superior to the Christian. They kind of look down their nose and they say, well, I can do whatever I want, and you are stuck in this rigid and hypocritical system of morality. And it makes me think of a nag, a tired old horse being driven to the glue factory. And because he doesn't have a saddle on his back, he feels freer and more superior to the noble horse that is galloping toward the palace, carrying the king on its back. And the nag that's just kind of ambling along to its death at the glue factory says, you know, I am so much freer than that poor, miserable horse that is under the king with a saddle on its back. And the Christian declares with joy, I am not the captain of my soul. Jesus is the captain of my soul. And it is not only necessary that believers individually submit to God's kingship, but it's also necessary that the community of those who faithfully submit to Christ needs to be protected and to be increased. And that's what the the Catechism continues to say. It says, preserve and increase your church. That's also what we're praying for when we pray, your kingdom come. And that's important. The prayer for the coming of the kingdom has to do with community, with the covenant community, with the congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, with the holy church of our Lord Jesus. You know, there are people that love to sing, King of kings, Lord of lords, you are enthroned, O Lord Jesus, King Jesus. They love to sing about King Jesus, but they refuse to love the church. That's weird. And it's not only weird, it's just plain wrong. It's like saying you you love the king, but you can't stand being in his palace, or you can't stand being with his beloved family. And the fact is, Until Christ returns on the final day, the closest that we can come to the fullness of his kingdom is in the church. Because it is in the church that we meet men and women and children who bow the knee to Jesus as King of Kings. It is in the church that we see Christ exalted and praised and acknowledged as the head of the body, the sovereign Lord and master of his people. Well, what does Paul say to the Ephesians, chapter 3, 21? Ephesians 3.21, he says, Unto God be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. God is exalted and praised as sovereign king in the church. And so our prayer for the coming of God's kingdom includes an earnest desire for the protection and the increase of God's church. We want to see the world full of more and more men, women, and children that bow the knee to Christ, that that express and confess with their mouths that he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And so we'll look quickly at a few psalms 
which deal with that. For instance, when the church is in danger, we pray with the psalmist in Psalm 106, verse 47. 106, 47. When the church is in danger, we say, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. When the church is torn apart by attacks from within and without, then we go with the psalmist in Psalm 102, verse 12, 102, 12 to 16. And we pray like this, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come, for your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory, for the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. And when the wicked are torturing and murdering our brothers and sisters in the church under the cross of persecution, then we turn, for instance, to Psalm 79, verse 9, and we pray with the psalmist, Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. And if we long for the coming of God's kingdom, we don't just pray for God to preserve the church, we beg him to increase it. The more nations and tribes and families, men, women, children that bow the knee to Christ, that confess him as Lord, the more his kingship is manifest, the more his name is hallowed. And so we pray along with the psalmist in Psalm 138, verse 4. 138, 4. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. The church has a very optimistic view of the advance of the kingdom. The church believes that, yes, every authority will submit. Every authority will bow the knee and will give glory to the king of kings. And we pray, therefore, along with the psalmist in Psalm 86, verse 9, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. These are these saints in the Old Testament. They didn't even understand exactly what was going to happen. They didn't understand what we understand about the coming of the Lord Jesus, about his death, his resurrection, about his ascension to the right hand of God, that all power and authority in heaven and earth were given to him, that he sent out his messengers and ambassadors and heralds into all the nations. They didn't understand these things. But one thing they knew is that every nation, every authority would come, would bow, and would worship. And if they understood that, how much more should we not long for it, brothers and sisters. So if we long for God's kingdom to come, that means we long for our neighbors and co-workers and fellow citizens to hear the words of God. We long for St. Albert to hear the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. We long for neighboring cities and all across the province and throughout Canada and every city and town of the world. We want people to hear of the preaching of Christ. We long for them to come and to bow the knee before the Lord Jesus. We long for them to know the joy of being translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom 
of the Son of God's love. And that means we pray. Remember, we're being taught by the Catechism, by the Scripture, by the Lord Jesus, how to pray. We pray for that. It means that our prayers are more than just, Lord, please bless this food, amen. And, oh, by the way, forgive us our sins. It means that we're deliberate. It means that we plan our prayers. It means that we pray for the preacher so that he doesn't say what he thinks, but, but he proclaims the living word of God. We pray that the word might go forth with power in the spirit. We pray for God to touch the hearts of visitors in the church of us. In fact, it means that we pray for God to bring visitors into the church of us. And that, he would, that means that we pray for courage to invite visitors. It means that we pray for God to make us brave and courageous to invite people to study the word with us to come hear the word preached. It means that we pray for our neighbors and our co-workers that they might come to know Christ. It means that we pray for our friends and acquaintances from other faith communities around us that they might come to know and acknowledge the lordship of Christ the King, the only way, the only truth, the only life, the only hope, the only salvation. It means that we pray for missions, Missions here, close by home. Mission project in Edmonton, in BC, in all over Canada, and in Brazil, the work that we support there, and then all around the world. But not just that. If we long for God's kingdom to come, that means we pray for God to increase His church, not just through bringing people in, but also by blessing His church with covenant children. That as we live in the midst of a culture which hates life, literally, which exterminates life in the womb, that we pray to God to grant us a love for life, to grant us covenant children, lots of them, to fill the earth with more boys, girls, men, and women that love the Lord Jesus and live to the praise of His glory. Make us a people who rejoice in and who celebrate life, we pray. And we pray fervently that God would also not just give children, but that He would bless the children, that He would grant fruit on all the teaching and preaching they're privileged to receive, that He would work in their hearts that miracle of regeneration, that He would work in their hearts true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that He would lead them by His Spirit, that they might walk in His ways. And it also means that we pray fervently for God to bring back those, both young and old, who stray from the path of life. That means that we long for the day when the final elect person will be gathered into the kingdom. Your kingdom come is then, first of all, positively, a prayer for our faithfulness and our submission to God's kingship, to Christ's kingship, and also a prayer for the preservation and the increase of a growing community of believers, the church. That's positively. But the prayer also implies something negative. And we see that in the next words of the Catechism, destroy the works of the devil. Every power that raises itself against you and every conspiracy 
against your holy word. Now, it's, it's difficult to say those words in our non-confrontational age, in our very polite Canadian culture. Destroy the works of the devil and every power that raises itself against you. It's a little bit embarrassing to be so confrontational. But our prayer for the coming of God's kingdom, by necessity, implies a destruction of the other kingdom. The two kingdoms are mutually exclusive. And the, the victory of the one is only possible by the total destruction of the other. They're sworn to each other's total destruction. And the very stated purpose of the kingdom of, of, of Satan is to dethrone God and take all of God's children captive to sin, to death, and to eventual eternal hell. And if we love the kingdom, and if we long for its coming, that means that we also need to implore God to destroy the works and frustrate the plans of the kingdom's arch enemy. Now, our battle is not against flesh and blood. I remember when I was a little boy walking on Sunday with my dad, and the neighbor was working underneath his car on Sunday, and I, as a foolish little boy, thought that was very wrong and hoped that he would hurt himself while he was doing that. And my dad took the opportunity to instruct me that that was not what God's people do. We don't be angry with our neighbors. We don't want God to destroy our neighbors who are working on their cars on Sunday or cutting their grass on Sunday. That's not what the battle is about. We heard that this morning, right? We, we live in love, and we reach out in love. But what we do pray for is this. We pray for the Lord to destroy every power that raises itself against him, every conspiracy against his holy word. And the psalmists were very lively in their prayers for God to destroy those who sought to destroy God's work and God's people. And we can learn from those prayers. Turn to Psalm 3, verse 7. Of course, in the Old Testament, the battle is, is a little bit more concrete. The church is in a different situation. But we can take these psalms and apply them to the, to the, the powers and the conspiracies and the spiritual forces which attack us today. So Psalm 3, verse 7, for instance, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. You break the teeth of the wicked. Or you can look at Psalm 7, verse 6 to 9. Psalm 7, 6 to 9. Arise, O Lord, in your anger, lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, you have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, according to the integrity that is within me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous. What is the psalmist asking for in Psalm 3 and Psalm 7? He's, he's asking this, Lord, for instance, those who want to devour the flesh of little babies through the murder of abortion, break their teeth. In, in other words, take away their power to hurt. Frustrate their plans to widen their network of death. May the abortion clinics go bankrupt, O Lord. May the power go out. May everything go wrong. May the abortionists get a flat tire on the way to work. 
We're not looking for God to hurt the people. We're looking for God to destroy the conspiracy, to take away their teeth, their ability to hurt, to devour, to kill. And so those who promote perverse lifestyles and wish to impose them on the righteous and their children, who want to impose the the celebration of sexual perversion on Christian schools, as we experienced very recently here in Alberta. And then we can pray, Lord, rise up against them. Frustrate their plans. Bring their wicked plans to nothing. And we can pray with respect to those who teach false gospels and and who teach lies and gospels with false hope. We can say, oh Lord, let them be vanquished by the triumphant progress of the true gospel. Now, the psalmists were very aware of their poor condition on this earth. They, They cried out to God about their struggles with their own sinfulness and their struggles with their sworn enemies. They longed for the coming of God's kingdom, and they prayed for it in very vivid terms. And we can look, for instance, at Psalm 144, verse 5. Psalm 144, verse 5, where the psalmist says, Bow your heavens, or rend the heavens, O Lord, and come down, touch the mountains, so that they smoke. God's people, the psalmist, often were crying out to God, oh God, break into our reality with your eternal and heavenly power. May the powers of the life to come break into our broken world here and establish your kingdom. And that's exactly what happened, isn't it? God did rend the heavens and God did come down. And God did crush the head of our worst enemy at Golgotha. The seed of the woman stomped on the head of the snake. And he destroyed the power of the evil one. And he freed us from all the dominion of the devil. And he was then victorious and exalted to the right hand of the Father. And given a name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. That's the victorious warrior king that we read about in Psalm 110. A warrior king ruling with a rod of iron. And that's the Messiah. That's the victorious Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, sitting at the right hand of the power, opening the scroll seal by seal, advancing history. That's the one we're praying to. And while we're praying, your kingdom come, then up there in heaven, the Lord Jesus isn't just sitting around. He's not lounging around in a comfortable pavilion. He's not lying in a hammock waiting for the last day. But as we pray your kingdom come, the Lord Jesus is making it happen. He is on the field of battle. Look at him there at the end of Psalm 110. Executing judgment amongst the nations, filling them with corpses, shattering chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. He's not lounging around in a comfortable pavilion. He's on the field of battle. And he stops for a hurried drink by the roadside and quickly mounts up again to engage the enemy, to charge into the very teeth 
of the enemy. Do you see him? He's described in Revelation, isn't he? He's mounted on a white horse. His name is faithful and true. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. And he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the day will come when he has rescued every one of his chosen ones, when he has struck down every enemy of the kingdom, everyone, everything which raises itself up in rebellion against God's sovereignty. And the day will come when the last enemy will be destroyed. And that last enemy is death. And he will take death. And he will throw death into the lake of fire. And then we read it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Then Jesus will hand over the administration of the kingdom to his father. As true man, as Messiah, as the last Adam, he will say, Father, we messed up with the first one. We gave it over to the enemy. Here it is. It's all back under control. And he will hand it over to the Father. Mission accomplished. And God will be all in all. That's what we're praying toward when we say your kingdom come. And that's what Jesus is doing as we pray. Now, if you're not a kingdom citizen, that great and terrible day will fill you with terror. But for those of us who long for the coming of the kingdom, there is no better day. This is the day we're waiting for. This is the day we're longing for. This is the day we're praying for. This is the day we're closer to every day. And then finally, on that great day, the king will be on the throne. The king who will make everything better. And so we pray, come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Amen.